Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Within one lifetime, we went from the first tentative steps into the air to having humans stand on another celestial body in the solar system. Hello, hello, I'm Dallas Campbell, and welcome to another episode of Patented, a podcast all about the surprising, fascinating, sometimes convoluted, sometimes strange history of inventions brought to you by History Hits. I'm excited today because I feel like I'm on home territory. We're talking about a subject that I've been reading about forever, and I've been studying forever, and making programs about forever. Cast your minds back, if you will. 17th of December, 1903, two brothers on a sand dune in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, were about to embark on a journey. They were trying out this radical new form of transportation. And the journey they were about to make was absolutely extraordinary. It was a journey of 120 feet, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that 120 feet was really the foundations of what makes aviation possible today. I am, of course, talking about the Wright brothers. It's also a fascinating story about invention and innovation itself. In fact, it's the quintessential story of innovation. How is it that a pair of brothers, bicycle builders from Dayton, Ohio, cracked that legendary idea of flight, human flight that we've been thinking about for millennia. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, Peter Jacob, who's going to be talking about this. There is no one better than Peter, actually. He's the part-time senior curator, no less, at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. So fasten your seatbelts, doors to automatic and cross-check. Welcome to the show, Peter. Peter Jacob, senior creator at the Smithsonian. That's a job I want. Of all the kind of jobs which I don't have that I'd secretly like, I think I'd like that one because the Smithsonian's such a fantastic... Anyone who's been to Washington has been to sort of Udvar Hazy and looked at all the aircraft and been to the Smithsonian and looked at all the aircraft. How did you get that gig? Well, actually, uh, about 40 years ago, I came to the Smithsonian <laughs> and uh, told them what I could do and, you know, the classic story and got my foot in the door and... One thing led to another and then became the chief curator, actually, of the museum and then retired from that position a couple of years ago. And now they they had me back on just sort of part time, continuing ah, to do uh, Wright Brothers that's things. A nice, yeah, that's a nice thing. I didn't realize you were part time. 
actually, just before we start, the Smithsonian's got such an interesting, such a big part of the history of aviation, I think. It's always been there front and centre as an institution when we talk about the history of aviation and space, of course, obviously. Our secretary in the early 20th century, Samuel Langley, was an aeronautical experimenter, so we were kind of there Mm. from the beginning. But the museum itself, as a separate entity within the Smithsonian, is created in 1946. And then in 1966, we added the space bit. In 1976, the separate museum building was opened, which we're now doing a massive renovation of. And then in 2003, the Udvar Hazy Center, and it's Hazy, not Hazy. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm going to get letters. Our great benefactor, Mr. Udvar Hazy, is Hungarian. Hazy, I'm so sorry, Mr. Hazy. I didn't know that. I was just testing you. Yes. Well, I'm Hungarian, so I was the only one who could thank him in Hungarian for his generous donation to help create the museum. So, Hey, listen, if anyone hasn't been to the Udvar Hazy bit of the Smithsonian, it's awesome. It's really, really amazing. I was, In fact, I was there the other day. Well, I said the other day, the other year, a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was doing some filming with the Apollo spacesuits. Uh-huh. And so I was with the Apollo spacesuit curators, and we were doing some filming with, uh, what did we have? We had a whole bunch of spacesuits out, actually. We had Charlie Duke's Apollo 16 spacesuit, and it was like one of my favorite days filming ever. I was like, oh my God, Udvahazi, spacesuits, come on. Everybody loves the spacesuits. Of course they do. <laughs> I have a couple in my flat, actually. I'll get them out at the end and show them to you. Hey, just quickly, you mentioned a name there, Samuel Langley. Actually, before we should get onto the Wright brothers, we're going to talk about the invention of the aeroplane. Samuel Langley is an interesting story because he, in a way, sort of slightly preceded the Wright brothers by a year or two. He was paid by the government to develop or try to develop heavier-than-air flight, and it all went a bit pear-shaped. Yes. Yeah. Well, Samuel Pierpont Langley, he was actually an astrophysicist and uh, astronomer in particular. He did a lot of research on sunspots and uh, the measurement of uh, solar radiation and that sort of thing. And then he came to the Smithsonian Institution in the late 1880s and then became secretary of the Smithsonian, which is the head of the head of the institution. And, and in those days, the head of the Smithsonian was sort of the chief scientist of the United States. Today, it's more of an administrative post. But in those days, he was an active scientist in charge. And Langley uh, got interested in, in heavier-than-air flight and in the 1880s did a number of aerodynamic experiments with an instrument we call a whirling arm, quite a large rotating arm to generate a flow of air over whatever object you have on the end of the arm. He did experiments with that and then ultimately made some large unpiloted steam and gasoline-powered models, which flew successfully in 1896. And I always say that Langley, it's the classic story of he should have quit while he was ahead because (laughs) with the success of the large unpiloted craft in 1896 and in the subsequent years, he went on to try to build a full-size human-carrying piloted craft. And he simply scaled up these models. And that was a flawed thinking from an engineering point of view. And the large full-scale aircraft collapsed upon itself, crashed miserably to his great embarrassment and ended his experiments with flight. And he actually died shortly thereafter, a couple of years later. He should have stopped in 1896. There's a, yeah, there's a lesson there. Actually, and it's an interesting lesson, actually. We were talking about the sort of history of innovation, the difference between someone like Samuel Langley's approach to the problem and someone like the Wright brothers' approach to the problem. So, okay, first of all, we should establish what we're talking about. We're talking about aeroplanes rather than flight generally. People have been thinking about flying for thousands of years, as long as we've looked up 
We've been thinking about flying. We've been writing about flying and Icarus and the Montgolfier brothers and hot air balloons. But we're very much talking about heavier than air flights, so the beginnings of the aeroplane, which, of course, we attribute to the Wright brothers. And lots of people listening to this, of course, will know the story. But I'd like to hear it again because it's such a good story. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, which you will have talked about a long time. But just for our viewers, for our viewers, we don't have any viewers, for our listeners, Remind us, Peter, who the Wright brothers were. Where did they come from? What was their background? Well, before we go to the Wright brothers, perhaps we should talk about one other pivotal figure. And for a UK audience, quite an important one. And that was a fellow called Sir George Cayley. Cayley was around in the late 18th century up until the mid-19th century. And uh, he was what in those days one would call a natural philosopher, kind of a general scientist did a lot of work on agricultural improvements, those sorts of things, gentleman scientists, so to speak, and was very interested in, in flight. And he, too, like Langley, had a whirling arm uh, type of device where he did aerodynamic research. He was also the first person to really kind of conceptualize what a modern airplane is. Uh, you mentioned Icarus and all, you know, all the ancient notions of flight. And then, of course, Leonardo da Vinci famously had aeronautical designs. He invented everything. Every time I do a program, there's always, oh yeah, Leonardo da Vinci did it first. <laughs> he was quite a, quite a fellow, I think. He, uh... <laughs> yeah, but he just sort of did rubbish, sort of slightly dodgy sketches. And was, oh yeah, he invented the tank and he invented the aeroplane and he invented this, that. Yeah, yeah. he's a great, a great interest in my Actually, I had an opportunity to do a da Vinci exhibition a number of years ago and we brought oh, um, his uh, codex on flight uh, from Italy Lovely. to the Smithsonian, which... Uh, was quite a special thing. But even though Da Vinci is fascinating and all these other characters, nothing that they did really led to any real accomplishment in heavier than air flight. But Sir George Cayley's ideas did. And in 1799, he conceptualized essentially the modern airplane, which is a craft which had separate lift, propulsion, and control systems. You know, unlike a bird where the, the lift and the control systems and the propulsion system, it's all one, right? It's all in the wings, the way the wings are flapping and so forth. But Cayley understood that humans couldn't fly that way and separated these elements out, which was really a critical idea. And in fact, he commemorated this idea with a, a silver disc that he struck in 1799, which had an image of this of the modern airplane, as well as an aerodynamic force diagram on the other side. And that disc is in the Science Museum in London. Oh. Another highlight of my career back in 2003 when we did the centennial of the Wright Brothers, I was able to borrow the Cayley disc from the Science Museum, and it was the only time it's ever left the UK. Goodness. Whereabouts is it in the Science Museum? I'm gonna, is it up on the top floor? It's in the aeronautical science. section. Okay. I'm going to go and check it out next time. I'm... It, I don't know yeah. if it's currently on display, but it used to be. Okay. So I was able to hand carry it on the airplane across. So I did abscond with one of the UK's national treasures for a bit, but it has You're, been returned. You can, you can have it. We borrow lots of things from you, actually. We've got the Apollo 10 capsule yes, in the Science yes. Museum, which we've borrowed. For you. In any event, uh, so Cayley was a really critical figure in that he really conceptualized the modern airplane. He also built full-size gliders and and really was the, the sort of watershed figure when it comes to heavier-than-air flight. So, Cayley, what sort of year we're we talking about? So Late 18th century and uh, died in uh, the mid-19th century. Okay. So, would he, I mean, if we'd looked at one of his designs, would we have recognized it as an aeroplane? It had wings and... Again, you would have seen a distinct set of wings. You would have seen a distinct control system in a sense of a movable tail. And you would have seen a propulsion system, although his propulsion system was flawed. He was still using flappers for propulsion, which would have not been successful. But the key idea was mm. that it was a separate propulsion system from the wings, from the control. And that was the key concept. 
to make a successful airplane. And the Wright brothers were certainly aware of Cayley's work, as were other experimenters. So again, he's kind of the watershed figure in terms of this Mm. ancient time immemorial human desire to fly. It really doesn't get anywhere until Cayley's ideas. So much appreciate uh, George's work there. And he also (laughs) founded the Polytechnic of Central London in 1838, which is now the University of Westminster, and was a critical figure in uh, public education in the UK, Uh, much like the Smithsonian. There were public science lectures at the Polytechnic. There was a theater there, which has now been reconstructed and and is a theater again on Regent Mm -hmm. Street there in London. So Cayley was a critical figure, not only in aeronautics, but also in sort of citizen science and and public education about science. You mentioned he was experimenting with this whirly arm thing, you know, like a sort of helicopter rotator. And I was actually just today, I was reading an article written in 1907 by Wilbur and Orville Wright in Century Magazine, in their own words, explaining their story. And they were saying the reason they got interested in flight in the first place was their father used to make little helicopters out of corks and rubber bands, which would whiz around and fly. So there you go. So the kind of the rotary arm was also, I suppose, yeah. the inspiration. Actually, that article was in 1908. But I'm getting it all wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I'd never read it before, actually. I, I, I wasn't even aware the, of it. The, the story sort of, is that the, their father brought home this little helicopter toy. Uh, when they yeah. were kids, and they played with it, and then they made larger ones to see what would happen mm. and so forth. And that's a little bit of a, of a sort of expanding the story a bit. The Wrights kind of projecting back on, you know, origins of flight. Uh, they were like typical young boys, you know, they finished playing with the toy, got bored and moved on with to something else, you know, sort of direct connection from the helicopter toy to the invention of flight is not quite so linear, but uh, but they definitely were exposed to an aeronautical yeah. device as, a, as young boys. Yeah. And also, actually, in that article as well, one thing I noticed was how much they talk about other people. So they talk about other inventors, other people interested in aviation, you know, and they borrowed ideas because people were experimenting with gliders and kites long before the Wright brothers. Just tell us some of the influential people whose work they were drawing upon. Yes. An important point, I think, to understand about the Wright brothers was they invented the airplane in a more original sense than most inventors create things. I mean, there was just mm. a lot of original thinking in what they did. However, timing was an issue. Had they come along 10 or 15 years earlier, I'm not so sure they would have accomplished what they had accomplished. Had they come along 10 or 15 years later, I'm not so sure you know someone else would have done it before them. But they came along at a, at a, at a very propitious moment. And there was a beginning interest in flight among professional engineers and other technical people. It was starting to move out of the realm of crazy people, so to speak, you know, that, uh, well, you know, if God intended us to fly, he would have given us wings mentality. But you had serious engineers, people like Octave Chanute, who was a railroad and canal engineer in the United States, a French origin, came to the United States. In Germany, an engineer by the name of Otto Lilienthal, who was working with steam engines and other technologies, he got involved with flight and started building uh, full-size gliders and was incredibly influential for the Wright brothers. In fact, Wilbur Wright called Otto Lilienthal, he was the greatest of the precursors. That's how he characterized Mm. him. So there was this important time at the late late 19th century where flight research was starting to be taken seriously. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Timing is everything. I think this is a good point, a good moment 
to remind ourselves that actually the Wright brothers, they were not scientists. They didn't have degrees. They didn't have honours. They were bicycle builders from Dayton, Ohio. They were brilliant craftspeople and they had brilliant minds in the way that they worked and the way that they innovated. True, but you also have to remember in the 19th, late 19th century, credentials were not the thing as they are today. Mm. I often say that the Wright brothers have incredible name recognition. Most people have a sense of who the Wright brothers were. But the basic story is bicycle mechanics, high school dropouts invented the airplane. And while that is technically true, it really belies the true nature of their skills and their background. They had incredible intuitive skills, great mechanical skills. They also had a very intellectually fostering at home environment. Their father was an itinerant minister in a Protestant sect called the United Brethren in Christ. He was known as the wise bishop in the church because while he certainly was a pious man, he was also very political and clever about church doctrine and almost from a legalistic point of view, that sort of thing. The Wright brothers' mother, interestingly, is kind of the side of the family where their uh, mechanical skill derived from. She was the daughter of a wheelwright and a carriage maker. And as a young girl, she would play in her father's shop and she learned how to use tools. And when the Wright brothers were young boys, she was the one that would fix things around the house. She would make toys for them. Their father couldn't hammer a nail in straight, but it was their mother who had the technical skills. So in this day and age where we try to highlight female contributions, it's good to note that the Wright brothers' mother was the technical one. Why bicycles, actually? Why was, Where did the bicycles come from? They were bicycle builders, famously. So where did... Because that was a new invention as well. Right. Well, if you were growing up next to the Wright brothers when they were coming of age in the 1880s, you probably would have felt sorry for their parents because they were kind of two guys going nowhere fast. The younger brother, Orville, had dropped out of high school, but not because he wasn't competent academically. He just was interested in becoming a printer. He got interested in printing technology. And again, in those days, the academic credential was not that critical. So he started a printing business. Their older brother actually wanted to follow in their father's step and become a minister and actually had planned to uh, attend Yale Divinity College. He had an accident uh, playing a sports game. And uh, to make a long story short, kind of dropped out, to use a modern term, uh, just kind of receded into his own world of reading and, and thinking and dropped out of kind of any kind of social scene. Then he joined the younger brother helping with the printing business. And then in the 1890s, there was the so-called bicycle boom in the United States. Mm. And that was fostered by the creation of the so-called safety bicycle, which is typical of a modern bicycle today, where both wheels are the same size. In the old days, there was the ordinary, or in the UK, as they call it, the penny farthing, where you had a very, very large front wheel and a very, very small back wheel. And these bicycles were very difficult to ride, dangerous to ride. But with the advent of the safety bicycle, it opened up that freedom of mobility to most everyone, including women. It was the first technology which really allowed women to sort of travel on their own and, and uh, have bicycle clubs and things like that. The Wright brothers' younger sister, she was an avid cyclist as well. So the Wrights got caught up in the bicycle boom of the 1890s in the United States and decided to open a small rental repair shop. And then that led to actually manufacturing their own line of bicycles in, in the mid-1890s. So... That they kind of fell into bicycles because it was it was the technology of the day mm. and the place. We mentioned their father's toy helicopter. Was there a kind of spark where you can see where their interest in aviation, where they said, okay, we're going to not just do bicycles, we're going to really explore this idea of heavier-than-air flight? Yeah, interestingly, the Wright brothers did not dream of flight as, as youngsters. As I say, they played with the toy and then moved on to other things. Unlike uh, some other experimenters of the time who had this lifelong dream of flight, the Wright brothers come to flight really because, and this is more Wilbur's motivation than Orville's, 
he was really kind of looking around for something to do to sort of prove himself to himself. As I say, he'd kind of dropped out of, of society a little bit after his injury and, you know, was kind of having self-doubt. This was also a time where there was a, a significant economic depression in the United States. And there were two older Wright brothers uh, named Rushland and Lauren Wright. And they had gone out on their own and they were struggling economically, struggling with family. And the Wrights uh, saw, you know, that struggle of their older brothers. And there were, Wilbur was just kind of thinking about something that he could do. And aeronautical technology, again, it was starting to be taken seriously by professional people and technical people. And it was sort of a something that he saw that hadn't had a lot of work, a lot of progress done on it. So maybe that was something he could do. So they really come to it not with a passion for flight, mm. but as sort of a project to do, you know, something to kind of see what they could put their skills to. History tells us that in 1455, the royal houses of Lancaster and York went to war, beginning a 30-year dynastic struggle for the throne that would change the course of English history forever. It became known as the Wars of the Roses. At this time, the Wars of the Roses are well underway. There's so much uncertainty throughout the country and who's going to come through all of this. This month, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out all the answers to your burning questions. People have just assumed the Beauforts were bad. For when was this scribbled in? It's effectively an act of graffiti on a parliamentary roll. Who were the key players? What were the critical battles and switches of allegiance? Was it ever really a case of good and bad? Join me, Matt Lewis, on the Gone Medieval podcast from History Hit every Saturday for brand new episodes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. There is something really interesting about the way that they worked as well, the difference between someone like Samuel Langley. We're going to scale something up and make it big and then it doesn't work. As far as I understand it, the Wright brothers were all about slow, methodical, small evolutionary steps in design. And I wonder if you just tell me about their thinking, like how they went from nothing, if you like, or the most basic glider through to, well, let's say the, the 1903 Wright flyer for which they were famous. Well, the Wright brothers were consummate engineers. They really had tremendous engineering skill. And by that, I mean they approached the problem in a very methodical way. First thing they did was, as a modern engineer does, is do a literature search, see what everybody else had done. Where is the state of the art of the technology, which is precisely what they did? Then they understood that the problem needed to be broken down into individual elements. And here's where the Cayley uh, breakthrough came in. They understood that an airplane was not one invention, but it was many inventions, all of which had to work in concert for the system to fly. An airplane is essentially a technological system, to use a modern term. The Wrights didn't use that term, of course, but they understood what a technological system was. So they understood you had to have a, a good set of wings. You had to have a control system. You had to have a propulsion system. You had to have a strong, lightweight structure. 
And every one of those issues had to be solved for the whole system to work. And they very methodically worked through those problems. They also believed in continuity of design. In other words, you don't just try a design, see if it works, and if it fails, try something completely different. You vary one or two elements along the way trying to refine the design. So if you look at their very first craft in 1899, it does not look unlike the final successful airplane of 1903 and 1905. So they had all of the sort of landmark elements of sound engineering that we use today. All those different components, you said, the one that they left to the end was propulsion. So they got the shape of the aeroplane. They understood. Luckily enough, a few years ago, I went to Kitty Hawk and I flew an exact replica of the 1902 glider, which is basically looks a bit like a kind of elongated box kite. But it seems to me that that particular craft was where the real breakthroughs happened because it was that particular craft, the 1902 glider, where the principles of control flight, as in pitch, roll and yaw, which is how you actually control an aircraft, was really discovered and born. Is that right? Yes, they did sort of set propulsion aside because they actually felt that that was going to be the easiest piece of it. Yeah. Um, again, you know, timing is everything. This was a period where uh, lightweight internal combustion gasoline engines were being developed and that technology was moving on. They turned out that that was not quite the case, and I'll get to that later in the discussion. But they began with the aerodynamics and the control. And the control in particular, they felt that most experimenters had ignored. That, you know, just let's get into the air first, and then we'll figure out how to control Mm. the thing. And they recognized that was flawed thinking. So they worked on their idea of what they called three-axis control. In other words, you know, if you're flying uh, an airplane, you have to fly in three-dimensional space, right? If you're driving an automobile, you're on two-dimensional space. But in the air, you're in three-dimensional space. And their gliders, they built a a kite and then a series of three gliders culminating in the 1902 glider you mentioned, where they were evolving the aerodynamics and the control system, as well as the structural design. The real breakthrough, though, was their wind tunnel work in the winter of uh, 1901-1902, which produced the 1902 glider that you've described, which was really the first true airplane in the sense of a controlled Mm. aircraft, that uh, wind tunnel work was critical and, again, was foundational. We design airplanes in much the same way that the Wright brothers did in a fundamental way uh, more than a century ago. Was that the first wind tunnel? It was not the first wind tunnel. There were probably a dozen or so wind tunnels before that. But all of those earlier tunnels were kind of qualitative in nature. In other words, Mm. someone would put something in the flow of air and just sort of see how it reacted. What made the Wright Brothers Wind Tunnel breakthrough was the instruments that were inside. They were the first ones to actually use a wind tunnel to gather some very specific aerodynamic data to then incorporate in the design of the aircraft. So they really um, uh, used the wind tunnel again in the modern sense. One of the things that's so important to understand about the Wright Brothers, they didn't just guide an airplane that got off the ground first. They actually invented aeronautical engineering. And every airplane that flies today, every airplane that flew subsequent to the right airplane has the same basic elements embodied in it. Well, that's it when you're in, you know, Virginia or when you're in Ohio and everyone says first in flight on the number plates. I can't remember which state's number plate says first in flight. Is it Virginia? North Carolina. North, I mean, Virginia, North Carolina, sorry. They weren't the first in flight. They were the first, I like to say they're first in controlled flight. I want to go along with my little Sharpie and put a little arrow and write controlled. That three axis control, pitch roll your, I mean, how fundamental an understanding was that to the legacy of the Wright brothers. I think it's uh, it, it's central. And in fact, when the Wright mm. brothers patent their airplane, when they, they apply for their patent, they actually patent the glider because they didn't want the patent examiner to be confused by the application of power as being a particularly important or unusual element. 
So the patent is actually on the three-axis control system uh, in, in large measure. So that was, that, was, that was critical. Let's talk about those three axes. So let's, just for our listeners, um, let's take the 1902 glider, which was the, the, the aircraft before the famous Wright Flyer with the engine. How did those three axes work? So what do, what do we have on the airplane? So, so sort of how do we go up? How do we do pitch? How do we roll? And what sure. Controls well, okay, let's say you're sitting in an airplane. And uh, obviously, airplanes go up and down, right? Climb and descent. Yes. So that's uh, known in aeronautical terms as pitch, the pitch of the nose of the airplane, pitching up, pitching down, right? So yep. that's being able to control the aircraft in pitch allows you to control it in climb and descent. Then we have roll or balancing the wings. So how did, in the glider, how did you control pitch? Slightly different to a modern aircraft. Just like in a modern airplane, they had a movable elevator control surface. The only difference was their elevator was in front of the wings rather than at the back of the airplane. But aerodynamically, mm. it doesn't make a difference. The wing doesn't know if the elevator's in the front or the back. Yeah. I'm demonstrating with my hand, which, of course, my listeners cannot see. But you may, they call it a canard wing. So it sort of tilts up and down. And when you want to go up, you pull it back and up you go. And you want to come down, you push it down and it tilts down and down you go. The wing is not the canard. The canard no, is no. the arrangement of the elevator or the control surface ahead of the wings. Uh, mm. All modern airplanes, most all modern airplanes have the elevator control behind the wings, at, at the tail at the of back, the aircraft. Yeah. So a canard configuration is when it's in the front. But what happens is that being able to control that elevator surface allows you to control the, the climate descent of the wings. So that's pitch. So roll, which is how an aircraft turns, banks. Good job they were bicycle builders. They would have understood leaning and... So how do we control roll in a 1902? Uh, that was one of their more ingenious uh, developments. So roll meaning balancing the wings, right? So you're, you know, you're as opposed to side to side, you know, pointing the nose from side to side, you're rolling the airplane so the wings are banking. They came up with this concept called differential lift. In other words, airplane wing is flying along, right? And uh, wind is going over it, generates lift. Now, if mm. you turn the front edge of the wing, the leading edge of the wing up a bit, higher angle of attack, as it's called, you'll generate more lift up to a certain point, and then it'll stall. But you increase the angle of attack, you get more lift. The Wright brothers reasoned, well, if we could control the angle of attack on either side of the airplane, in other words, if I could make the angle of the leading edge higher on one side than the other, I could get more lift on that side, and that way it would rise that side of the aircraft, and you would balance the wings in roll. This, they first... Um, uh, tried to develop using a series of mechanical gears and shafts and control surfaces, which was quite heavy and complicated. Then they came up with the beautifully elegant design of literally twisting or warping the wings to get that um, that difference angle. And then they could control that uh, quite effectively with a series of cables and pulleys and uh, and uh, control the roll of the airplane. So wing warping, and they did it, because I've done it, They you do it by sort of shifting your hips, and that sort of literally sort of twists the wings. Of course, we use ailerons now on a modern airplane. Yeah, but the, the concept goal. is the same. It's we, differential lift, yeah. which is why I say yeah. the right airplane, every airplane today flies fundamentally the same way the right airplane did. Yeah, and the third axis, your, is imagine a plate on a table that you might sort of If you're of sitting in the airplane, it's... Side to side, the, the nose of the airplane mm. going to the left or to the right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, just as you know, you drive your car, you're going to the left or the right. The nose of the airplane goes left to the right. And that's controlled by a movable rudder at the back of the airplane, much like a ship. Okay. So there we go. So that is the, that's the sort of 1902 glider. So, and you said that's really what they sort of patented, those, those controls. And in fact, the, the sort of engine they stuck on afterwards, 
not an afterthought, but certainly not the kind of genius moment, I think. Well, there is genius in the propulsion system, and and it's not just the engine. You have to think about the propulsion system because you've got Mm. to turn the power of the engine into thrust to move the aircraft forward. And that well, how difficult, because they had to make propellers and they had to make an engine. Perhaps sort of talk us through that, because they didn't make the engine, didn't they? No, the they to- calculated what the horsepower performance they needed to fly the airplane of the size and design they wanted. And they hunted around to engine manufacturers. As I say, this is a time where, you know, early automobile engines were in coming into in place and so forth. And they couldn't find one that they could purchase at a reasonable price that would be light enough for what they wanted. So they designed their own. And even by the standards of the day, their engine was was somewhat crude. But what was so revolutionary were the propellers. They made the first true aeronautical propellers. Uh, Unlike a ship propeller, which is kind of just displacing the water as it moves the vessel along, the aircraft propeller is actually aerodynamic. So they went back to their wind tunnel experiment work, which was, again, quite crucial. And they realized that a propeller is simply a wing moving in rotary motion. Now, if you think about it, you know, if if you have a wing flying along horizontally, generates a vertical lift force, correct? If you Mm -hmm. turn that wing on its side and you spin it to generate the flow of air, you still get the same lift force, but now it's oriented horizontally. In other words, now you have thrust. And that that was the the elegant breakthrough that they came up with. Then they refined the the exact cross-section of of the propeller, the the pitch of the propeller, to get um, really, really uh, maximum thrust. And in fact, interestingly, the efficiency of the Wright Brothers propeller is within a few percent of the efficiency of a modern aircraft propeller. They really were amazing designs. How did they design it? Because they were made by hands, presumably. Were they sort of hand-carved propellers? Yes, they were. Um, Again, they go back to their wind tunnel, and they um, uh, were able to get an airfoil shape or a cross-section of the propeller. Again, the propeller is just like a a, a rotary wing. And uh, and then they had to also calculate the the displacement of the uh, propeller Mm. moving forward. It's actually fairly complicated. It's horrifically complicated. (laughs) But they were able to do that in, in a most efficient way. But the larger point that really the propellers and the wing warping um, really illustrates about the Wright Brothers' uh, innate abilities, they had amazing capacity for what we call visual thinking or graphic mental imagery. In other words, they could come up with a, a basic concept, an abstract concept, and then they could see it in their mind's eye and actually turn it into a working piece of technology. And they had the great ability to, with great fluidity to go from the abstract to the concrete. And that was a critical mm. piece of, of their engineering prowess, shall we say. As we sort of push for time, take us to 1903. First of all, why did they go to North Carolina to Kitty Hawk from Dayton, Ohio? What was special about that particular place? And just take us through that day when it happened in 1903, when we first cracked human Well, they, uh, uh, when they began their glider experiments, they were looking for a place that had good, strong, steady winds to keep the glider in the air and open sandy spaces so they could safely test the gliders. The other thing that the Wright brothers uh, did that was so important was flight testing. They actually incorporated data they got from testing the gliders in the field into the design. So they go to this place called Kitty Hawk. The reason they went to Kitty Hawk was uh, they got some uh, weather data from the U.S. Weather Bureau. They sent a, a note to various places. They got a very welcoming note back from the local people at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. That was the decision. It was easy to, relatively easy to get to by rail at that time. So that's why they chose Kitty Hawk. And uh, they really enjoyed those visits. They were like vacations for them. They really enjoyed their time at Kitty Hawk. By 1903, they're ready to uh, build their powered airplane. 
And as I mentioned earlier, when they first started, they didn't think they were going to invent the airplane. They were just trying to add something to the success of the future worker, as they said. But by 1903, they knew they were going to invent the airplane. They knew they were going to fly. They had made so much progress. They designed their engine and propellers, their propulsion system. They head back down to Kitty Hawk. Uh, they had some teething troubles with the uh, with the engine and the and the uh, transmission system of the propulsion system, but finally by December they were ready. The brothers uh, flip a coin to see who would be the first one to fly. Wilbur wins the toss, makes the first attempt, and the airplane kind of reared up and stalled on the takeoff, and they damaged it slightly. It wasn't a real flight. Three days later, they had the airplane repaired, ready to go again. Now it's Orville's turn, and Orville makes that first flight, and I think most everyone has seen that incredibly iconic first flight photograph where you see the right airplane taking off and Wilbur trailing along the side as Orville uh, makes that first flight, about 12 seconds in duration, uh, 120 feet in distance. They made three more flights that day, alternating as pilots. Wilbur was the pilot on the fourth and final flight, and that was the real convincer. That was the one that really showed the airplane could fly, because it was in the air for 59 seconds which doesn't sound like a lot today, but if you just think about it, you have to be sustaining the airplane. You have to be controlling it to stay in the air for 59 seconds. First of all, what was their reaction? Were they like, oh my God, the world has changed? Or were they more modest in their sort of excitement of what had they done? And how did the word get out? I mean, there were other people there, I think. There were well, there were some three, witnesses, three uh, the local mm. villagers. It was a, Kitty Hawk was a, a fishing village in those days, and there was a life-saving station there. So there were some of the local folks there. They make that last flight, and the plan was after lunch, they're going to fly down the beach to Kitty Hawk and you know make a, a really long flight. The airplane was sitting on the ground, and a gust of wind came along, picked it up, cartwheeled it, and damaged it beyond repair in the field. So that ended the uh, experiments. And it was, you know, winter was closing in, so they write a famous telegram to their father that they had made these four successful flights, and they would be home by Christmas and packed everything up. In early January, a couple of weeks later, they did do a press release to the Associated Press, and they relayed the basic story, and they concluded by saying, we went home knowing that the age of the flying machine had come. So they knew that they had done it. However, they were not content simply to get an airplane into the air and say, we were the first to fly. They were interested in building what they called a machine of practical utility, a, a practical airplane. So in 1904, 1905, they build two more powered airplanes, refine their design, and by 1905, they have a true airplane, an airplane which can stay in the air as long as the fuel supply lasts under the full and sure command of the pilot. And they make a spectacular flight in October of 1905 of nearly 40 minutes in the air, and it was you know, had proven to themselves that they had finished their experimental period. And uh, and that is really the world's first practical airplane, that 1905 airplane, which still exists. It's in a museum in Dayton, Ohio. And the rest is history, as they say. Well, all of I it's mean, history. It, it is all, and there is this wonderful continuation, this wonderful timeline. And what the thing about aviation that always just astounds me is that we go from you know, the 1903 Wright Flyer, well, the 1902 Glider before the Wright Flyer, if you, if where we discover, as you say, the principles of aeronautics through to the kind of the moon landing in a single lifetime. And here we are now, nowhere on planet Earth is more than 24 hours away, thanks to aviation. Well, ironically, uh, Neil Armstrong, the first human to, to set foot on the moon, was also from Ohio, like the Wright brothers, and mm -hmm. he was a great fan of the Wright brothers. Right. And a small piece of fabric and wood from the Wright brothers' airplane was taken to the moon on board Apollo 11 in 1969. And uh, we have that, that artifact in the museum. And it's a really powerful object because, as you say, within one lifetime, we went from the first tentative 
uh, steps into the air to having humans uh, stand on another celestial body uh, in the solar system. Mm. All these people, you know, we talked about people dreaming of flying for thousands of years, people experimenting with gliders, of course, for hundreds of years. To sum up, what do you think was special about the Wright brothers? Why did they crack it rather than anyone else? Well, a number of things. Again, we talked about the timing. They came of age at the right time. But they had a a unique combination of mechanical skills, innate abilities, and personality traits. They had tremendous self-confidence. You have to remember, people like Samuel Langley, the head of the Smithsonian, was experimenting with flights, Octave Chanute, and some other you know, notable figures, Lilienthal. And here were these two guys who really weren't anywhere at all experienced in this stuff. And they had sort of thought that, well, you know, everyone else is kind of on the wrong track here, and we think we ought to go in this direction. If you think about that, that takes a, a bit of moxie. That takes a bit of self-confidence. And that was derived from their family environment that instilled this confidence in them and trust in one another. But again, they had this marvelous set of intuitive skills about engineering, and I think that explains it. They, it wasn't that they were geniuses and just simply figured it out. They had a, a very precise, inventive method that was undergirded by these skills. So I, I would say, yes, the Wright brothers were special people in a lot of ways, but they weren't extraordinary people that no one else could approach. They weren't Da Vinci. They weren't Da Vinci. <laughs> I think one of the great lessons of the Wright brothers is individuals can make a difference. You know, we live in a very complex world today. Technology is very complicated, but I think the Wright Brothers is a great object lesson for young people in particular that, you know, you can change the world. You can do something that can change the world. And uh, the Wrights, again, they were talented, but they were not extraordinary. So I think they're still inspirational in our modern day in that way. Okay, that's it. Hope you enjoyed this particular episode. I did. Of course I did. How would I not enjoy that particular episode? If you did enjoy it, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to do all those things. Don't forget to tell me if there's a particular invention or a subject you'd like me to discuss or investigate. I'd be happy for you to get in touch. That would be wonderful. Hey, listen, next up, we've got more flying object stories, slightly different ones this time, whereas the history of human flight is a real thing. Next time, I'm going to be examining the supernatural variety. That's right. We're going to be talking about the invention of the flying saucer, of UFOs, which are kind of kind of fashionable again now. They sort of come in and out of fashion over the, over the decades. Uh, but guess what? They've got their very own invention story, which I'm going to be investigating. So the truth is out there. Don't forget to tune in for that. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented 
for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.